Hi, everyone. Welcome. Thank you to everyone joining us online and here at the ASU California Center Broadway at the historic Herald Examiner Building in downtown Los Angeles. With great respect, Zocalo Public Square acknowledges the Yuhaviatam, the first people of this ancestral and ceded territory of Yangna that we know as downtown Los Angeles. We honor the elders, past and present, and the Yuhaviatam descendants who are part of the Gabrieleno Tongva and the Fernandeno Tataviam nations. We recognize that the Tongva are still here and we are committed to lifting up their stories, culture, and community. As Kuyam, we recognize our responsibility and obligation to care for their land. I'm Nick Yang, and I'm the Digital Communications Coordinator here at Zocalo Public Square and Arizona State University Media Enterprise. At Zocalo, our mission is to connect people to ideas and to each other. Everything we do is free and everyone is welcome. We publish original writing and present conversations like this one. You can find us at ZocaloPublicSquare.org, on podcast platforms, and YouTube, so please subscribe for our latest programs. We were founded in 2003 and are now celebrating our 20th year. Woo woo! <laughs> our program tonight asks, would Parliamentary America have more fun? It's an honor to introduce our moderator, Erica D. Smith. Erica D. Smith is an award-winning columnist for the Los Angeles Times, writing about the people, politics, and quest for a more equitable California. She joined the Times in 2018 as an assistant editor. She previously worked at the Sacramento Bee, the An Indianapolis Star, and Akron Beacon Journal. She is a graduate of Ohio University and a native of Cleveland. Erica, over to you. Hello, everybody. Thanks for being here. My name is Erica Smith. I am a columnist with the Los Angeles Times. And I'm happy to be here to introduce our guest, Maxwell L. Stearns. So Max is the Venable Bacher and Howard Professor of Law at the University of Maryland. He has authored dozens of scholarly articles and books on the Constitution, the Supreme Court, and economic analysis of law. His work includes neoclassical economics, interest group theory, social choice, and game theory to study the legal doctrines and lawmaking systems. His latest book is Parliamentary America, the least radical means of radically repairing our broken democracy. I want everybody to welcome Max to the stage. So before we get started, I want to remind everybody that um, we're going to be taking questions near the end. And if you're watching online, you can submit questions on the YouTube chat. So let's get started. So what made you write this book? I mean, other than the fact that everything seems to be falling apart in our country. <laughs> so around the mid-teens, not my mid-teens, but the <laughs> 20 mid-teens, I, I began to realize that our democracy was seriously endangered. And I also began to recognize that more and more people were saying that. They were recognizing that we're in a constitutional crisis. But what I also saw was that the proposals that were being advanced to get us out of this crisis, either wouldn't succeed, couldn't be enacted, or typically both. And I saw this because I have a somewhat unusual background that combines the use of various tools of economic analysis to study constitutional law and lawmaking institutions. So I could understand what wouldn't work, but I also realized over time that I think I know what would. And so, I, I never envisioned myself writing a book, How to Fix America's Democracy, 
but I had to write a book on how to fix America's democracy, and, and that's the book that we're talking about. So just for short, in shorthand, what is wrong? Like, what is wrong with our two-party system right now? And you just said, you know, our third, we're in a third constitutional crisis is what you say in the book. Can you kind of elaborate on that a little bit? Absolutely. So it is, in fact, the case that we are experiencing our country's third constitutional crisis. The first was the period under the Articles of Confederation where we really seriously faced um, the threat of collapse. It may not have survived. Um, the second period was in, it was in the lead up to the Civil War in the period of Reconstruction, uh, where we also faced the threat, obviously, of, of collapse. And in both instances, leaders ultimately came to the realization that something profound wasn't working in our, in our system of government, and they really thought about what the problem was and how to fix it. And today the problem is that our two-party system, which we endured for over a couple of hundred years, I wouldn't say we thrived because of it, we may have thrived in spite of it, and that's one of the main lessons of the book, but we endured it for over a couple of hundred years, but in the period that I'll call the information age, beginning in the early 1990s, our late 18th century constitution hit upon a couple of fundamental changes in the world that rendered it profoundly dysfunctional. And what we're experiencing is two parties that once substantially overlapped, growing further and further apart to the point where we no longer are willing to credit people who read the same materials as we do but come to different conclusions with having done so in good faith. We either believe that people who disagree with us lack basic intelligence or are evil. And so we've been divided into two camps that just denigrate each other, don't trust each other, don't trust sources of information that challenge our beliefs, and that has rendered our government dysfunctional, and it has also rendered our society dysfunctional. And these things are intricately linked and require us once more to recognize that we are in crisis and have to come together and figure out a solution. Yeah, and so why can't that solution be something more uh, along the tweaking variety. I think we've all heard um, uh, solutions floated like, you know, growing the size of the, the Supreme Court or uh, tweaking the electoral, electoral college or getting rid of it altogether. Why do we need this kind of like radical throw, maybe not all out the window, but you know, throw every lot more out the window and build new things? So the main proposals that we see out there involve amendments to Congress, for example, eliminating single-member districts, having multi-member districts, having ranked choice voting, um, having, um, having at-large voting rather than having single-member geographically defined districts, or as you point out, um, trying to get rid of the Electoral College in favor of something like the national popular vote. Some people focus on the Supreme Court. The problem is that what these proposals fail to recognize is that what's the, the inherent pathology in our system is the fact that we have only two parties. And that's built into the system and was built into the system. It was baked into the cake from the beginning. What's so striking is that the framers of the Constitution envisioned what I call a rock, paper, scissors Constitution. They envisioned that for every option, for every branch of government, that branch could defeat some other branch or be defeated by another branch. But actually, if you go back as early as George Washington's farewell address, he talked about the fact that partisanship had overtaken that game. 
And we put up with it for a long time for all sorts of reasons. But the reality is that the divisions between these two parties are ripping apart the fabric of our society. And we're past the point where tweaks will solve the problem. If we actually just get rid of the Electoral College and go with a national popular vote, that's not going to get rid of the two-party system that's baked into the cake. And in fact, it could actually exacerbate some of the partisan animosity that we experience. Because if you think about election 2000 between George W. Bush and Al Gore, one thing that the Electoral College actually achieves, which is benign, is that it creates a kind of electoral harmless error Everybody knew there were several states in which there were election disputes, but the only one that mattered was Florida because whichever of those two candidates captured Florida's 25 votes would become president. If we have a national popular vote, you're gonna see electoral contests and efforts to suppress voting literally everywhere in the United mm -hmm. States. It's not gonna minimize partisan divisions, it's gonna exacerbate partisan divisions. And if you think about the proposals for Congress, ranked choice voting, multi-member districts, every one of them translate into unemployment acts for members of Congress. And in fact, we've never had a constitutional convention under the Constitution. All of the, all of the amendments we've have, have, have actually arisen from Congress itself. And try to imagine getting Congress to support an amendment or a change, even by statute, the consequence of which is to deliberately displace them in favor of somebody else, right? <laughs> and so a lot of people think, a lot of people think that what we really want to avoid is amending, but they get it wrong. What we want to avoid is a set of proposals that we can't get the key political actors behind. And that's what we really need to do. And we'll talk about the specific yep. proposals, but what's unique about the proposals in my book compared to virtually all others, it keeps every sitting member of the House and Senate an incumbent in their district or state. It creates a basis for them to rally behind it and become the heroes of democracy. And I may not love these people, and you may not either, but let them be the heroes of democracy so long as we can leave for future generations a thriving, functional, multi-party democracy. Let them take all the credit in the world. The goal is to achieve a better democracy for ourselves and future generations. Yeah. I should note that we were talking backstage about some of this stuff, and I want him to convince me that he's right, because I am the <laughs> resident cynic uh, um, <laughs> right now about our, the future of our democracy. Um, so I am hoping that you convince me. So, but to the lines of that cynical question, before we move on to what your proposals are, you know, I'm not entirely convinced a lot of Americans actually want a functioning government. I mean, we've seen Marjorie Taylor Greene Green get reelected. We have Matt Gates. We have Donald Trump is going to be more than likely the nominee of the Republican Party. A lot of what you're talking about depends on Americans actually wanting functioning government. And I'm not convinced that's true. Well, certainly it's true that there are individuals that may thrive in a dysfunctional system. I don't believe that the vast majority of Americans believe that we thrive in a dysfunctional system. I think most Americans would like us to actually thrive in a genuinely functional democracy and are trying to look for a way to achieve that. So you're absolutely right that we can identify specific politicians whose careers benefit by the sown dysfunction that we all see in the newspapers every single day. But I think we have to be optimistic. I think that as citizens of the United States, we have a dual responsibility. 
One, we can't give up on optimism. It's too important. The stake of the American Democratic Project is important not only to us, it's important to the world. It matters. This is a project that matters. And number two, we have to be thoughtful. It's not enough to be optimistic. We have to be thoughtful. We have to be willing to rethink the things that we learned as children and realize that a lot of the things that we learned as children may not be true. And we have to begin to think about old problems in new ways, and that's one of the reasons I wrote the book. To encourage people to broaden their horizons and to imagine that it's possible that other nations around the globe might actually have something to teach us. And that's why one of the centerpieces of the book, or really the centerpiece of the book, I take my readers on a virtual world tour to England, France, Germany, Israel, Taiwan, Brazil, and Venezuela. I think you'll enjoy the tour. It's fun. One of the themes of the evening is fun. And, and, <laughs> Optimism, and, and, yeah. thoughtfulness, fun. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I mean it. You know, I, I really think we can all benefit from opening our eyes and thinking maybe, maybe what I learned in middle school, maybe what I was told in high school isn't necessarily right. Maybe there are things to learn from countries that seem to be solving some of the problems better than we have. And I don't mean to suggest all those countries are doing a great job. You have to grade on a scale. But they have also faced down threats to their democracy, and we can learn both from their successes and from their failures. We just have to open our eyes and be willing to learn from the experiences of others around the globe. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. Um, you know, on your world tour, uh, there were a few that caught my eye. England was one, obviously. Can you talk a little bit about what you think we can and cannot learn from England? And I was particularly interested in the part about Brexit, which um, obviously got a lot of attention over here when it happened. Yes, yeah, so, so, so one of the reasons I included England on the tour, there's a couple of reasons. One is that we came from England, right? In other words, if we look at our history, um, England is really the mother, it's sort of the mothership, right? Um, and yet, we are very different from England in, in so many ways. So there you have a constitutional monarchy here. You have a, a, a constitutional republic. Um, but both countries are majoritarian systems. Both countries are predominantly two-party systems. And what's particularly interesting about England in thinking about Brexit and its connection to what's happening in our politics in the United States is the way the English system is set up you ultimately have two parties controlling because you have geographically defined elections. And as a consequence, each side realizes that the way to win is to divide the opposition and remain united. Both sides know that, so you end up with two dominant parties. That's our system, too. Except sometimes it doesn't work out very well. And what happened with David Cameron was his party didn't actually have a majority. He formed a coalition with a liberal party, even though he was a conservative. But he also had an element within his conservative party that was threatening him. And the threat was, we're going we're gonna to go a different route if you don't support the Brexit proposal to remove ourselves from the European Union. And David Cameron looked at the polls. And the polls said that 52% of UK voters are going to vote to remain, not to, not to exit. And so he said, OK, fine. I'll throw this out to the voters in a pre-legislative referendum. Except tragically, it ended up being almost precisely the opposite. Instead of 52 to 48% to remain, it was 52 to 48% to exit. 
And as a result, right, so this odd coupling of David Cameron and a liberal, this odd coupling in a predominantly two-party system required him to acquiesce to a small faction within the conservative group as a precondition to remaining in power. And so for him to keep his coalition together, he caused the EU to fall apart, and ultimately he didn't stay in power anyway. And what we're experiencing in the United States is strikingly parallel, because the problem is this idea that the way to win is to fracture the opposition keeps your side intact. Neither side can afford to give up part of its coalition. We see that on the GOP with all of the problems that we've experienced in the lead up to 2016, repeated in 2020, repeated in 2024. And there are some parallel threats going on on the other side as well. Mm -hmm. And you also include a couple of um, more failed democracies, as you put it. Brazil was one of those I found was really interesting. Can you talk a little bit about that one? So Brazil is a fascinating story. So one of the reasons that I included Brazil is because there are people who are interested in democratic reform who seem to think that the only thing we have to do is have more parties. I don't mean soirees, I mean political parties. Okay. And it's not true. We do need more parties, but that's not the only thing we need. And Brazil is a cautionary tale. Brazil is an example of a country that has hyper-fractionalized parties and that had a separately elected president. And as a consequence, this has led to serious governance challenges and it led to a really, really significant example of corruption under the heading of Operation Car Wash, which brought down vast numbers of major political leaders, presidents past and at the time, president and present and former. And I, I, I don't want to suggest that difficulties in governance condone corruption. I certainly don't want to say that. But what I do want to say is we can't turn a blind eye to the fact that certain governmental structures are going to be more conducive than others to corruption. And the problem is, yeah, we want to have more parties, but the only way to give those parties an effective role is to have them play a role in the forming of the government. And so Brazil is the opposite end of the spectrum. So we see that having too few parties is a problem. Having too many problems is a problem. And what we really need to achieve, the enemy of democracy is extremism. What we have to achieve is the Goldilocks principle. We need more parties, but not too many more parties. Not too few, not too many. We have to hit that sweet spot, which most political scientists believe is somewhere between four and eight political parties, but also giving those parties a vital role where they actually aren't in a winner-take-all system, where third, fourth, fifth parties can play an affirmative role in the creation of the government. So we're talking structural change, basically, and you're calling it parliamentary America. Basically. I am indeed. So talk about what should our objectives be when we talk about solutions for parliamentary America? What are we trying to actually change or fix? So here's what, here, here's what we're really trying to change. I would love it if every single one of you and every one of you that's watching this remotely now or in the future gets to vote for somebody you really are happy to vote for. <laughs> but that's not all of it. I would also be happy if when you vote for the person or party that you actually value, 
you get something in return rather than being punished by throwing your vote in the direction of the candidate that you least favor. Because right now we are experiencing in this country what, is referred, what I refer to as the third party dilemma. You see, the thing about two party systems is, it's not that we only have two parties, right? We have multiple parties, England has multiple parties, but they're two party systems. A two party system doesn't mean there aren't third parties, it means that third parties play a confounding role. The confounding role that third parties play in a two party system is either operating as a spoiler, which is if you support that party, somebody more liberal than the Democrat, more conservative than the Republican, you're benefiting the major party candidate that you least favor, or the third party risks pulling in votes from both sides, rendering the choice between the major party candidates, the leader of the free world, a roll of the dice. We have to get rid of the third party dilemma. The way to solve this third constitutional crisis is to figure out a way to give third parties a genuine role in government. So when you vote for those third parties, you actually are not operating against your interest and those third parties will, 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 will provide you something of value. But in order for that to happen, we have to recognize the need to engage in reform on two aspects, two axes of government. We have to change the way we elect members of the House of Representatives, and we have to change the way we select and hold accountable the head of government, the president. If we don't take on those two things, what we're doing is using Band-Aids where we actually need to perform a much more serious intervention. And I wanna be clear, I'm not suggesting we get rid of the Constitution. The subtitle of my book is The Least Radical Means of Radically Repairing Our Broken Democracy. What I propose is radical, but it's least radical. It leaves many foundational American institutions intact, even things that a lot of people are not gonna like. But that's okay, because my goal isn't to make everybody happy. My goal is to make our democracy functional. And when we have a functional democracy, those other things that people don't like, we can take those on later. But we need a functional democracy before we do. So three amendments to make a functional democracy. Let's go for them. So the first, House of Representatives, talk about that one. Yeah, so what I'm proposing is that when you go in to vote for the House of Representatives every two years, you're gonna cast two ballots and the House of Representatives is gonna be doubled in size. So it's gonna go from 435 to 870 people and you're gonna vote in two different ways. You're gonna vote just like you do now in an electoral district. And what that's gonna do is, it's gonna make it so that we have two parties that are larger than the other parties for the reasons that I talked about. The goal is to unite your side, fracture the opposition. When you have geographically based winner take all in a single district, you're gonna get two parties that are larger than others. Ah, but you're then gonna vote by party. And if you are, say, a Democrat who is progressive, you're gonna signal that you want the Democratic coalition to move in a progressive direction by voting for the progressive party, or not. You may vote for the regular Democratic party. If you are a member of the GOP and you just don't want them to deal with MAGA, you might vote for the Democratic party or for the GOP. If you want them to form a coalition with MAGA, you'll vote for MAGA. Within our two parties, we probably have about five or six parties. The Republican Party roughly breaks down into the traditional GOP, what we could call America First. The Democratic Party breaks down into the traditional Democrats and progressives. There probably is a Green Party in there. There might be a Libertarian Party in there. And the idea is that you would be able to signal the direction of the coalition 
because the second of those amendments changes how we choose the president and vice president. And the idea is that in descending order of the number of seats, oh, I should back up on one point. So you vote for the two, you, you cast the two ballots, one by district, one by party, and then we use the party votes on a state-by-state -state basis to determine party proportionality for each state's delegation to the House of Representatives. Suddenly what we have is an impossibility, really, or close to it, of any party capturing a majority of seats, which means suddenly, think of the different campaigns required to win. No longer can you successfully campaign just by denigrating the other side. In order to campaign successfully, you have to actually demonstrate a willingness and enthusiasm for working with others, even who don't share all of your values. Just imagine how different that world is gonna look. And then, in descending order of the number of seats in the House of Representatives, we're gonna have the leader of each party, up to five parties, negotiate a majority coalition until a majority coalition forms. And that party, the leader's party, the, the pre-designated pre president and vice president from the slate that they offer will assume those offices. Lines of succession remain intact, two-term two limit for the presidency remains intact, those institutions remain intact. But notice what you've done. Third, fourth parties that you've voted for, their precondition to joining a coalition is gonna be, I'll join the coalition, but here's what I want from you you're gonna to have to make some policy concessions that my constituents favor, or you're gonna to have to give us a cabinet appointment, or you're gonna to have to agree to put one of our folks on the Supreme Court at the first opportunity. And then when you vote for those third, fourth, and fifth parties, you're not punished, you're rewarded, because those parties are gonna deliver something of value to their constituents that's gonna motivate folks to vote for those parties, and it's gonna motivate those parties to have the capacity and enthusiasm to form coalitions with others. And then that last amendment, I'll just briefly mention, mm -hmm. that last amendment finally, after nearly a quarter of a millennium, creates a basis for removing somebody who is so problematic in the role of being president that based on a vote of no confidence can be removed for, no, for maladministration. I keep impeachment intact, that's still there but a supermajority of 60% of the House gets to remove somebody based on maladministration. It's a pretty high bar, so simply disagreeing with policy choices won't get you there. But if you went back and you asked the framers, do you think that they'll ever elect somebody who should be removed from the White House? I think the answer would be, of course, of course not. And yet we have never once had an impeachment result in the successful removal of a president because our partisan system has overtaken the rock, paper, scissors game, rendering us dysfunctional. That's a lot. Um, so how would something like that affect gerrymandering, for example? We hear a lot about that given the elections are going on right now. Um, what, would that, what would that look like? So that's the beauty of it. What is the enemy of gerrymandering? Proportionality. <laughs> and so you have a system in place. Here's, here's the idea. Every sitting member of the House of Representatives, they get to stay in the district that elected them. So all the gerrymandering benefits that they got, they get to keep it. Any future gerrymandering, payoffs are gone because proportional representation is the enemy of gerrymandering. So what I propose ends incentives for further gerrymandering. They're gonna be literally taken away by the proportionality principle. 
because it's party proportionality, right? So you've ended a scourge of democracy. And by the way, I really hope you all purchase and read my book, but I am gonna recommend another one. David Daly, editor of, um, editor of Salon, wrote a book called Rat Effed, Why Your Vote Doesn't Count or something along those lines. Okay, you can figure out what the F means. <laughs> it is the story of the very technical Republican plan shortly after Barack Obama's first election in 2008 called Red Map, hyperpartisan gerrymandering by switching enough seats in state general assemblies to then entrench power in the House of Representatives in a manner that they thought would last for 20 years, didn't quite last that long, but here's the reality. As a consequence of gerrymandering, House elections are not competitive. Now that's not quite right, in the general election, they're not competitive, but they're competitive in the primaries, and as a result of being competitive in the primaries, if you are not close enough to the base of your party, you're gonna get primaried and thrown out in favor of somebody who is, and the consequence is to move the two modes, Democratic and Republican, further and further apart, feeding our dysfunction. This proposal ends that game. Allows the folks in the House of Representatives to keep what they got already, but now it's game over because proportionality is the enemy of gerrymandering. So what would be the reason, or what, first of all, how would this even happen for those of us who maybe who weren't paying attention in social studies class? Um, how, how would any of this, ha what, would, what process would need to happen for these amendments to go forth? So there are two ways to amend the Constitution. Two-thirds of the House of Representatives can propose an amendment or two-thirds of the states can call a constitutional convention and then the amendments have to be ratified by three-quarters of the states. That's an enormously high bar. There's no doubt about it. However, well, two things. We've never had a constitutional convention under the Constitution. We've come very close twice. Once within one state, once within two states, in the 60s and then in the 80s, okay? Here's the interesting thing. Let's say that we come close again and actually pass the threshold. Let's imagine we have a constitutional convention. Let's imagine the constitutional convention comes up with a bunch of proposals to fix the constitution that include multi-member districts, ranked choice voting, term limits for Congress, which would require an amendment because of a Supreme Court case. Suddenly, members of the House and Senate have a pressure release valve where they could say, you know what? We could actually fix this thing. Three amendments. Take the wind out of the sails of those folks at the convention. There are three amendments that will actually turn us into a thriving multi-party democracy. And don't imagine that we can't amend because it's hard to amend. The question is, as compared to what? And if the proposals for reform when we finally hit the inflection point, that inflection point at which we are at danger of collapse or autocracy, and we may not be far from either, suddenly it becomes very possible to amend the Constitution because we have to. And the question then becomes, how do we do it? Do we do it in a way that actually solves the problem, or do we do it in a way that just makes people feel good, but doesn't? And so what I'm trying to do here, and the reason I spent four years nonstop writing this book is because I was convinced that the public conversations about how to fix our democracy were in the wrong direction 
People like Andrew Yang, who was out there talking about ranked choice voting, ranked choice voting, ranked choice voting is just wrong. And he's not the only one. People think, oh, I'll vote. I'll run, you know, Manchin decided not to, but people think, I'll run on a third party campaign. No, you cannot run on a third party campaign and produce a three party system. If you want an effective third, fourth, fifth party, you must change the institutional structures to make it so that those parties can survive and actually thrive and deliver to their voters. And unless we have institutional reform to really facilitate and create space for multiple parties, none of these proposals are worth their salt. So yeah, so I want to be clear. It's really hard to amend the Constitution, but we've done some really hard things in this country. And we can do it again when the stakes are high. Do you think are. that those in power would be willing to even go down this path? I mean, that's part of, again, my cynicism. You know, people were talking about yeah. giving up or maybe at least the appearance of giving up some power to make this a better country. I mean, what would that, do we have to slide into autocracy before that happens? Well, I, I, I certainly hope not. I certainly hope that we can educate the public enough that they can put pressure on relevant political actors so that we don't have to slide into autocracy first because it comes, becomes much more difficult to make change when somebody is willing to thwart every institution. When you've got somebody who's in power whose mission is survival, even at the cost of fundamental democratic institutions, it becomes very hard to enact reform at that point. But here's the thing, these reforms not only allow members of the House and the Senate to retain their offices incumbents in their existing districts or states, it gives members of the House of Representatives substantial additional powers. They're going to negotiate who becomes the president. It gives members of state general assemblies substantial additional pathways to become members of Congress. Because through party list systems, they now have a way to actually get from state capitals to Capitol Hill. And it also preserves the integrity of an institution that we all rightly despise because it's the most anti-democratic institution in any country that purports to be a democracy, the United States Senate. Think about this. We're in California, okay? 21 smallest states population equals the population of California. So that means that the 21 smallest states have 42 senators, you folks get two. Compare yourselves to Wyoming. Wyoming, two senators, 600,000 people. Every Wyoming voter has the voting power for the Senate of 67 of you. A stunningly anti-democratic institution. But actually, in a multi-party system, we can actually work with it. Doesn't make people happy. But we can, we, can, we can actually make it work because here's the thing. Although it's true that you'll end up with two dominant parties running in each electoral district or state, there is precedent for the idea that it won't necessarily be the same parties in each region of the country. Think of the Midwest, think of, think of Minnesota, think of the Farmers Party. It may be true that every region has two parties dominating, but they may not be the same two parties. We may also turn the Senate into a multi-party institution, and once we do, there might be a greater openness to thinking about other kinds of reform, reforms even to improve that institution, right? Yeah. Near the end of the book, you talk a little bit about if 
we were to pass these amendments, what would American democracy look like? I mean, how do you, what would, in your wildest dreams, what would that look like for us? So imagine this, think about the, think about the Kevin McCarthy debacle, where, where, where he was Speaker of the House and he steps down and the Republicans seem incapable of putting together a coalition to put somebody in an office that actually kind of matters, you know, it's, it's, it's number two in the line of succession to the presidency after the vice president, the Speaker of the House is literally next in line. <laughs> and they couldn't get it together. But everybody kind of knew this. Centrist Republicans and centrist Democrats probably could have agreed on somebody to fill that office and everybody said, just get them together. No, because the institutions won't allow it. Each side wants to fracture the opposition, keep their side intact, but in the system that I'm talking about, mm -hmm. Republicans wouldn't be holding to MAGA Democrats might not be beholden to progressives. You could imagine the Democrats and Republicans forming a grand coalition. And that grand coalition could actually improve our governance. We might not hold hostage the federal budget limit every single time we hit the wall. We might be able to come together with some reasonable public policies related to women's reproductive rights not imagining that a frozen embryo is an actual human being, for example, right? We might be able to tackle the problem of guns. We might be able to tackle any number of public policies for which a majority or supermajority of Americans agree but don't have an institutional mechanism to turn that agreement into a public policy. And I want to be clear, I'm not Pollyannish. I'm not suggesting we all sing kumbaya once these proposals go into effect. But I am suggesting least radical means of radically repairing our broken democracy. Once we are functional, we can tackle things that really matter, one by one. Will there be fights? Yes. Will there be disagreements? Yes. Will people get upset? Yes, it's called politics. But we can have functional politics, even with that disagreement. I think we can live in a better America, and I think that we can, you know, let me say, <laughs> the, the, the dedication of my book is very simple, very simple to my children and yours. That's it. I think we can leave future generations a better democracy. We're not gonna anticipate all the problems that are gonna arise in that better democracy, but let's at least give them better tools to deal with problems that we can't foresee by creating a functional multi-party democracy. So I'm gonna ask you one more question, but I wanna tell everybody we're gonna start asking you guys questions soon. So I hope somebody- Are we gonna ask them or they're yeah. gonna ask me? They're gonna ask, they're gonna ask <laughs> okay. you. I'd love to ask them, that'd be fun. <laughs> getting, getting my order mixed up here. But uh, you know, last question for you, if we don't do this, if we don't make some sort of semi-radical change, I mean, what do you see ahead for American democracy? I worry that we are facing collapse or, author or, or authoritarian takeover. Mm -hmm. and, and let me just say, so I'm gonna tell you another book to, to, think, to think about reading, right? There's a fabulous book by Ziblatt and Levitsky, two Harvard political scientists, called How Democracies Die. And the central lesson of that book is a vital one for Americans to understand, which is a lot of people think democracies die in some dramatic fashion, some coup, makes the news, but no. And this is the reason I do the world tour. Democracies die through the gradual erosion of long agreed upon democratic norms. That's how democracies die. Our democracy is a dying patient. It needs to be revived. That's the reality. And I'm not being hyperbolic when I say we are in a constitutional crisis. 
We are in a constitutional crisis. When 63% of Americans wish neither of the seemingly inevitable candidates were running for president, and one of them is facing a series of four sets of indictments, and may actually be convicted, even potentially incarcerated, before he would assume the Oval Office, which, by the way, he could win, and we know that because he's done it once before. We're not being theoretical and talking about a constitutional crisis. We're in it. And we want to figure out a way to make sure that our democracy is not one of those democracies that die. And that's why I wrote this book. OK, you kind of convinced me. <laughs> that makes me happy. Good. Let's take some questions. Uh, are we, I think we're having some folks line up, but I don't know how we're sure we're going to do it. But. Hello. Um, so we're going to start with a online question. And to our in-person audience, if you have any questions you would like to ask our panelists, please come right over here and line up. Yeah. So the first question um, is, how would local government change under a parliamentary system, like city and county government here in LA, for example? How, I, I want to be sure I understand the question. How would local government change, change under a parliamentary system? Is that the question? Yeah. So I want to be clear, what I'm proposing is to change our federal government, but I actually do think that if the federal government changes, it's very likely to have benign effects in changing state governments. Less sure about local governments, but here's an interesting thing. One of the problems with ranked choice voting, aside from the fact that it does none of the things that people who advocate it claim it to do, is it creates a profound information problem. Imagine yourself when you go in to vote for say eight people running for office, having to ordinarily rank five people for each of those offices, you have to figure out, okay, which, what is my 40 person ranking to fill eight offices, right? So, so for rank choice voting to work, which it actually doesn't work, but for it to theoretically work, you'd wanna have to limit it. Not true of what I propose. If the system that I propose were adopted at the federal level, states could do it too. It's a great system. It could work at the state level and we could end up with multi-party systems operating within states, which would be natural because we'd have multiple parties at the federal level. Municipal government is complicated, it's different. I think I'll leave that for another, for, for, for another day. <laughs> and this is our first in-person. Hi, my name is Isaac, I'm an RN and was top 10 in the Nationwide Bernie 20 leaderboard and in fact, you kind of addressed the question I was going to ask. Ranked choice voting is on the California Democratic Party platform. It passed the legislature. The governor vetoed it. Boo. But um, I, I was going to ask you to elaborate more on ranked choice voting. I heard you say that people would have to rank like maybe 40, but the way it works is you can vote for just your favorite. You don't have to rank beyond that. So I wonder if you'd care to talk a little bit about the, uh, the pros and cons of, of your proposals and whether ranked choice voting could come in to play either before, during, or after your proposals get passed. So I think there's a profound misunderstanding about what ranked choice voting does. So there are different ways to do it, but the most common version of ranked choice, vo ranked choice voting 
is instant elimination voting. So the way it works is, let's say that you have a series of candidates running for a particular office. So you rank your choices. The candidate who gets the fewest votes gets knocked out, and then those who voted for that, their next in line votes get reallocated, and then the lowest performing candidate knocks out, and the process is repeated until there's a majority winner. And all you have to do is look at the Peltola original interim election in Alaska to discover something. And, 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 and this is not against Peltola who won, right? Rather, it's to point out that Nick Bajic actually was the centrist candidate in that election, except the centrist candidate got fewer votes than the others. It turns out that Sarah Palin voters would have had a better result from their perspective by staying home. <laughs> if they had simply stayed home, then what would have happened is Palin wouldn't have knocked out Bajic. <laughs> and as a result, it would have been Bajic against Peltola, and Bajic would have won. Now, I'm not saying that to make you prefer Bajic over Peltola. I'm telling you that because your intuition, those who support ranked choice voting, is that it gets you to the centrist. But when you have a bimodal voter distribution, which is exactly the problem we have in the United States, all it does is escalate, make it more rapid, that one of the extreme candidates is going to win. And this has been demonstrated, this has been proven theoretically, it's been demonstrated empirically, again and again and again. And unfortunately, voters are being sold a bill of goods about ranked choice voting and it doesn't do what its supporters claim. Separate from that, you're absolutely right that people don't have to rank for every office, but that creates problems too, because then the most activist voters end up having much greater influence than other voters who don't go to the trouble of ranking all the candidates, which means that the outcome is even less likely to be representative of the preferences of those who are voting for it. It simply distorts outcomes. I don't mean to suggest that it never succeeds. It works well if you have a standard distribution of voter preferences. But if you had a standard distribution of voter preferences, you wouldn't need ranked choice voting. <laughs> so it solves a problem that we don't have. But the problem that we do have, it doesn't solve. It actually exacerbates it. Uh, my name is Bob. I wondered if your world tour could take us to Israel for the Israeli government. My very superficial understanding is they have a multi-party system. Um, they, they elect, they don't have any districts. They elect by, by list, party list, uh, for the entire country. And I think it's one of the most dysfunctional governments at the, at the current time in the world. So what is, Maybe you think what they're doing is right, but how does your system differ from the system that currently exists in Israel? And is there anything that we could learn to avoid the morass um, that Israel is certainly experiencing today in terms of their crisis in democracy? So I not only can take you to Israel, but do take you to Israel. The first country in chapter six, which is the second world tour chapter, um, begins with Israel. So I take you to uh, England, France, Germany, Israel, Taiwan, Brazil, and Venezuela. The book locked before the recent events that included what happened on October 7th, 2023. Um, but, but what I advocate is not the system that Israel has. 
And we could have a long conversation about Israel, but obviously we can't have a long conversation about Israel. But I'll say this. Israel is, pure, is a pure proportionality system. The system that I'm proposing is called mixed member proportionality. It mixes two systems of representation. So you have a district representative, right? And you have, a purport, you, have, you, have a, you have somebody who represents you based on a party vote. And it's the combination of these two features using party proportionality to actually determine proportionality for each state that creates that sweet spot, that Goldilocks principle between roughly four and eight parties, not too many, not too few. So one of the things that I convey in the book and in the tour, the reason I take people on the virtual world tour is that the enemy of democracy is extremism. Having too few parties is a problem. Having too many parties is a problem. Israel's an example of a country that has too many parties. Now, Israel has special challenges, and we could spend a lot of time talking about it, except we don't have a lot of time to do so. But it is an example, like Italy, like Brazil, of a country for which pure proportionality has resulted in party fragmentation in ways that are the opposite end of the problem that you see, for example, in the United States and in the United Kingdom. In the middle, <laughs> right, um, this system that I'm describing is an adaptation, uniquely American adaptation, from a system that was developed for Germany after World War II that most political scientists regard kind of the gold standard, the best way to do democracy precisely because it blends two systems of representation and it achieves that sweet spot, that golden, you know, so Goldilocks principle of not too many parties, not too few. I'm Carol. Suppose I were in the House of Representatives and the other party had the problem of not being able to pick a speaker. Why, what would keep me from wanting them to pick the weakest possible speaker since they were the opposition? So I, I don't want to speak to anybody's subjective intentions because it's not what I do. I, I, it's certainly possible that there are members of Congress whose goal would be to elect the weakest person to lead the other side, hoping for the other side's collapse in ineffectiveness. Um, but that wouldn't be the goal. The goal, of course, would be to try to find a coalition of people that would together be able to appoint somebody who would be an effective leader, especially knowing the risk that if you vote in the least effective person who happens to be second in the line of succession to the presidency, you are playing with fire in a very dangerous way. So I, I like to hope members of Congress wouldn't play that game because it's such a dangerous game to play. I wouldn't suggest that there are no members of Congress <laughs> that would be unwilling to play that dangerous game. Um, but the goal, of course, is to create institutions that produce benign incentives, not problematic ones. Yes, hello, my name is Andrea, and I'm from one of the systems you have been referring to. I'm from Berlin. Ah. Um, first of all, thanks a lot for your presentation. I really enjoyed that. I have a couple of questions, actually. I'll try to ra narrow them down to two or three. It's interesting to hear your praise of, of our electoral system, because you know, watching everything that's happening back home, we're completely stuck. We're completely stuck 
because of the number of parties we have in our coalition at the moment. So I would like you to perhaps also allude to the good sides of first, you know, the winner takes all, which basically is you can actually get things moving. <laughs> um, we, we, you know, we're our, co our coalition is trying to do a transformation process, but the governing parties block each other. Nothing is moving. And if you think, for example, of the of the um, of the Netherlands, uh, their coalition uh, negotiations. I think they lasted for 15 months. So the country was without a government for 15 months. So that's a little bit the downside um, of, uh, of proportional representation. And then um, my second question is, um, where do those additional parties come from? I mean, parties form themselves along cleavages, right? And I was wondering what the cleavages would be in this country new parties would form themselves along. Beautiful question, it's great to have you here from Berlin. So let me make a couple of comments. Everybody should know this. So what I'm proposing is an adaptation of the German system. I am not proposing take the German system and make it ours. It's a very American adaptation. And what I mean, what I mean by that is, just a little bit of background, in March, this past March, a year ago, almost a year ago, Germany underwent a fairly radical transformation of its mixed-member proportional system. One of the tenets of mixed-member proportionality is everybody who is elected in what they call a constituency seat election, which is roughly equivalent to our House district elections, is going to be seated. Then you have the second ballots by party. The problem that this created in Germany is that you had a 598-seat lower legislative chamber called the Bundestag. But in order to make the mathematics work, seating everybody in the constituency seats, but also rendering it proportional, you had four categories of seats because some of the constituency seats end up being overrepresented based on proportionality. They get what's referred to as overhang seats. And then you have another category of seats because every party has to be proportionally represented. And what happened in Germany was you ended up with a 598 baseline seat legislative body going up to 736 seats. So basically, you can do the math, another 138 seats added, and this exacerbated, and then they had another rule that allowed more parties, which was that if a party got a certain number of constituency seats, it would be seated as a party, even if it didn't get proportional representation. And so you ended up with some problems, and I avoid these, and, and, and then the other part, of course, is the, the lengthy coalition negotiations. So one of the things that I've done to make it an American system is cap the size of the House of Representatives. Germans, Germany's Supreme Court insisted on pure party proportionality. What I propose is we don't need pure party proportionality. We need what I call good enough proportionality. Good enough so that neither of the two major parties can win on its own so that all the parties have to campaign on a willingness and enthusiasm to govern effectively with others. Good enough proportionality will break the two-party deadlock and get us past the constitutional crisis. I also propose a fixed calendar with a backstop to make sure 
that our elections remain on the schedule they are on now. I give Congress latitude to adjust the calendar, but I retain the line of succession, I retain the two-term limit that we already have in the Constitution, and I have a backstop to make sure that we don't wind up with endless coalition negotiations that never yield a result. In the backstop, is a mechanism to hold the party's feet to the fire so that they understand the stakes of having the plurality winner control the government, especially because if the plurality winner isn't in a successful negotiation, it is likely an outlier in something deeply troublesome, which motivates majorities to get together to avoid that adverse result. So again, I know Germany's got problems, and they're in the middle of a transformation. I genuinely hope the transformation works well for Germany. Of course, we have to suspend things and see how it goes, because one of the things I'm trying to convey in the book is we have to learn from experience, not just theory. So that's right. What I'm proposing is an adaptation of what Germany's doing, but recognizing some of the problems Germany's faced that we can avoid, which is why I call it parliamentary America. It's a very American version of mixed member proportionality that I'm proposing. Thank you. Um, just a heads up, we have time for about um, one or two more questions. No pressure, no pressure. Um, my name is <laughs> Will. My name is Will, and not to beat a dead horse with uh, ranked choice voting or anything, but I'm curious about the role of individual leaders inside of parties. Um, and ultimately, it seems like locally our politics are becoming much more nationalized. Um, if you run for city council, your position on international issues is now increasingly an issue. And just really thinking about that, when we go towards, this seems like it's running towards partisanship rather than individual leaders. My big concern is a lot of probably the best leaders in history in my ideal situation in Netherlands, Peter Otzig, who like wrote a book and then started his own party because he disagreed with the rest of his party. People like that are very instrumental in like really great governance. Adenauer in Germany like created the CDU. So many great leaders have to make parties to work in parliamentary systems, but why, why run towards partisanship and not away from it? So if I understand the question correctly, and, I, and, 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 and pl please feel free to clarify if I, if I don't. Um, in the United States, I think it's quite right what you've described, that unfortunately we live in this very strange world where Politicians at the federal level are asked to articulate positions on local governance, where people in local governance are asked to articulate questions about international affairs that they have absolutely no control or input over, at least in their present offices, because we're a hyper-partisan society divided into two camps that so despise each other that they believe that one cannot be in the other camp and have basic intelligence or be other than evil. I think we can come out of that crisis if people aren't forced to identify with only two available anchors. So I think that a lot of people have this intuition that they land where they are ideologically or politically because they've thought about problems from the ground up and they've come to the resolution that my view of the world is the right one, but actually that's not true of anybody who's thoughtful. We all come to our positions based on the very limited set of options that are out there in the world, and we pick the one that either is part of our culture, our upbringing, our society, our religious beliefs, whatever it happens to be that influences us as we come of age. And then, we, we, we sort of align with that because that's one of the only two available options. I think that when we have more options available, these kinds of intense divisions 
are ameliorated. And I think part of the benefit of that, I don't know, but I think part of the benefit of that is a more realistic understanding of politics. It doesn't really necessarily matter so much what a city council member thinks about some crisis globally on the other side of the planet, right? It might matter what the city council member thinks about problems of crime in neighborhoods in the city or problems of potholes in need of repair that are causing people substantial damage to their vehicles or quality of the schools, quality of the curriculum, things that actually that person might have some degree of influence over and knowledge about. I do agree with your observations about political entrepreneurship, which ties into the last question, the part that I didn't get to, where do these third parties come from? I think that they come from institutions that allow them to emerge and thrive, or they don't come from institutions that don't. Our system doesn't allow third parties to emerge and thrive, but we can come up with a system that does. And again, that's why I wrote this book. It is from institutions that will allow the Democratic Party and the Republican Party to subdivide because it will reward voters that will vote for the, the, the spin-off parties and it will cause the spin-off parties to deliver for their constituents. That's where it comes from. I can't get into the mind of a political entrepreneur. I don't ever plan to run for office. I'm very happy with the job that I have, but I think you're right that one of the benefits of a multi-party system is it invites creative, innovative people to actually stake out some new way of thinking about a problem. And if that provides the basis for a new party, more power to them. So long as it's not hyper-fractionalized and I have a mechanism in there to solve that problem, which we didn't have a chance to get into, but it's in there, I promise. All right, I'm um, sorry. That was the, the last question for our Q&A. So sorry about that. Um, but yeah, passing it on to you, Erica. Oh, is that okay? Great. Well, everybody can give uh, Max a round of applause. For... <laughs> so I want to thank Zocalo Public Square and the Los Angeles Times, my employer, for presenting tonight's conversation and everyone <laughs> for joining us tonight online. Um, you'll be able to find a summary of our talk at ZocaloPublicSquare.org by tomorrow, along with interviews with our panelists. And please subscribe to Zocalo's newsletter, podcast, social media for more great conversations, also the LA Times. Um, <laughs> we encourage the in-person audience to stick around for light bites and beverages and at a post-event reception. And Max will be uh, at the Skylight Books table um, selling his book. All right. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. Thank you.